You are listening to the Quarter Transmissions Special. Episode 19. And now, here are Craig and Jeff. Hello and welcome back to the Tricorder Transmissions. This week, we will not be covering an episode of the show, but fear not, we have some great stuff to talk about. I am Craig, as always. Jeff yes, is here. Yes, Jeff is, Jeff is here. Yes. So, Jeff, I know our schedule's been a little hectic um, the last couple of weeks. You were on vacation. I was on vacation. We had some some colds thrown into the mix. So it's been a, a challenging couple of weeks for us. It has. We, we missed our first Sunday uh, since we started doing this over a year ago. It did, it did pain us to, to not be with you guys on that Sunday. But what we have to talk about today, we thought was worth doing because in a couple of days, this is, is going to end. And we want to make sure you know about it before it does. And that's the uh, special Kickstarter that's going on for season three of These Are the Voyages. As you know, we talked to Mark Cushman uh, a couple weeks ago about season three, and it was a little up in the air about when it was coming out. So when we talk to Mark, we're going to learn exactly why they went the Kickstarter route. But this Kickstarter is a great opportunity for everyone to get this book for a great price. It's basically going to be 40 bucks including the shipping, which is pretty much what it's going to go for if you were going to buy it on Amazon. True, and it's also autographed. And by the way, this is also your only opportunity to get a copy of this book before Christmas and uh, you know before New Year's. I mean, you probably won't have this book available for general sale until after the New Year, I would imagine, because all the, the copies he's getting done from the Kickstarter will be going to the backers. Right, right. So we, we hit a lot of great information. Uh, every time uh, we've talked with, uh, spoke with Mark, um, either at the convention or on air here uh, for the Tricorder Transmissions, it's been a really fascinating conversation, and, and this one's no different. But we also talked to Alec Peters, who is the creator of Axonar and the short prelude to Axonar. And those folks are, they sort of put this Kickstarter together. For, for Mark, and these are the voyages. So we also talked to Alec a little bit about Axonar, which is a really, really fascinating project. And uh, it is what he is calling an independent Star Trek film. And if you get if you go over to his site, StarTrekAxonar.com, you can watch the 20-some-odd-minute preview video. And it was also shown at the Vegas Star Trek convention, unfortunately. We didn't get a chance to see it. We were uh, kind of engrossed in some some other things. But a lot of our Star Trek friends from the convention are extremely excited about this project. Yeah, and I think if you watch that 21-minute prelude, which is sort of their, uh, I guess, their proof of concept, if you will, yes, um, you'll be really impressed. Uh, it looks really good. Yeah. And in addition to looking really good, they've got some top-notch acting talent involved as well oh for sure so a couple of veterans from the uh, Battlestar galactica reboot and the candy man himself is yeah part tony of tony todd yeah so uh, and, and a whole other cast of characters so we, we will uh we'll let you hear all about it when we get there so and and we promise uh next week we will we'll be back to our regularly scheduled commentary track uh but this week we think you're really going to enjoy what we serve up and speaking of serving up jeff I want to take this opportunity to wish you, as well as all of our listeners, a very happy Thanksgiving this coming Thursday. Oh yeah, it's come up upon us pretty quickly, and uh, you know another year has gone by, and it's time to reflect on things and and give thanks for for where we are and what we have, and and be with our family and loved ones. We hope all of our listeners out there get a chance to be with your families and loved ones this holiday season. Right on. Sort of following the theme of Thanksgiving, it seems like this episode's going to be a, a little overstuffed. So uh, enjoy the <laughs> extra couple of minutes of of show that you're going to get from us this week. Absolutely. And and just as we had in our last episode with uh, Mark Cushman, you're going to get a lot of really interesting information about Star Trek, the original series. So uh, without further ado, you want to jump right in with Mark's interview? Let's do it. Awesome. Here we go. 
Hey, we're back at the Tricorder Transmissions, and we have a special treat for you guys this weekend. We are having a follow-up discussion uh, with Mark Cushman, author of These Are the Voyages TOS book series. How's it going, Mark? It's going great. Good to talk to you guys again. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Craig. Hello. Hey. It's great to have you back, and the reason why we wanted to have you on, and and we're doing this special episode this weekend, is because we are coming to the end of the Kickstarter campaign for the third book in the These Are the Voyages series. That's the season three book. Mark, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Kickstarter? Yeah. I mean, first of all, everybody who's donated to Kickstarter, thank you, and you've made it possible for book three to be out this year. It had been pushed back until spring of 2015 and uh so we threw it open to kickstarter and thought well if enough people want to get it now we'll make it something that they can have and they have and so now it's going to be out uh so by going to kickstarter uh and going to these are the voyages you can get a copy for the same price that it would cost to get it afterwards next year but you can get it and hopefully you'd receive it before christmas now, that's fantastic because we, you know, the audience of the show, hopefully everybody's listened to the previous episode with Mark talking about the first two books. That was a few weeks ago. If you haven't listened to that, uh, you know, listen to this episode, go back and listen to those two, and it'll give you all the background on uh, the, the previous two books and hopefully get you amped up uh, for this Kickstarter that, that's for the third book and final book in the series. So, uh, Mark, you want to, you had hinted at some interesting things in the third book that, that you wanted to hold off on talking about until you came back on the show. Do uh, you want to throw a few of those things out for us? Sure. You know, some of the most fascinating things uh, in, in this research and, and through all the show files that exist and all the memos and everything was documented, but it's such a chore to go through it all uh, because it's not readily available online. You have to go down to UCLA and you have to go to other places to go through all this stuff. And it takes a lot of time. I took six months just going to UCLA to go through all these boxes, it's so immense, to find all the, the answers to all the mysteries of, of all three seasons. And there were so many in the last two books, as you guys know, uh, especially like in season two about uh, Nimoy almost didn't come back and why Gene Kuhn left and, and uh, how Lucille Ball lost her studio because of the gamble that she did on Star Trek and everything else. Well, the drama gets even greater in season three. As, as it should, as, because you look at the making of Star Trek over those five years. It was a five-year mission. It took him five years to do it from the cage all the way to Turnabout Intruder. Uh, but it was only on NBC for three years. And you look at those, those three years, it's kind of like a three-act structure to a movie. It gets more and more dramatic with each act. And the risk and the danger gets bigger with each act. And the pressure on the characters gets bigger and the jeopardies. And... And what was going on in season three, as you guys probably know, as most fans probably know, is first of all, it was supposed to go to Monday nights at 7.30, which would have been an ideal time slot for Star Trek. And NBC agreed to do that because uh, they got almost a million protests between individual letters and, and uh, petitions and marchers and everything else all told together. And at the last minute, they switched gears and said, we're going to put you at Friday nights from 10 to 11, which is known in the industry as the death slot. Right. <laughs> it is the single worst time slot of the entire week. I mean, Sunday nights is a pretty good, good, good night. And, and all other nights aren't. Back then, Saturday nights were a good night. Saturdays were a great night for TV. Now they're not. People go out more. But back in the day, when people had tighter budgets and more families stayed home, that's when you had, you know, all in the family and Mary Tyler Moore and Carol Burnett and Mannix and Bob Newhart and all these great shows that were on Saturday nights and doing great and, and being the top rated shows from Saturday night. The one night that was bad was Friday because that's when, especially for young audiences, high schoolers and college kids were at ball games and out on dates and school events. And uh, so Friday from 10 to 11 was just a horrible time slot. And they knew they were dead. And NBC knew they were dead, too. And then there was some uh, uh, information going around at NBC, which is revealed in book three, that they were not going to pick up Star Trek for a fourth year no matter what. And they no, knew wow. this before, before even going into the third year. They set, set it up to where this would be the last season. And if you read book one and two, you know why. You see the battles building, that, that this was a show that was crossing the lines with NBC on so many different levels. It was the sexiest show on TV. It may be hard to imagine now, but go back and look at anything else from that era. 
I mean, these miniskirts were the first miniskirts on television, and Kirk was making out with green-skinned women and you name it, <laughs> and, and they were doing uh, stories about racism and sexism and religion and Vietnam, and at a time when uh, entertainment shows weren't supposed to touch on any of those subjects in a serious way. They were saved for the news division. And then they had Gene Roddenberry, who NBC and the studio was constantly butting heads with because he was on a mission to tell the stories he wanted to tell and to do the show the way he felt it should be done. And he didn't uh, bend to corporate. And corporate doesn't like people who don't bend to them. So the decision had pretty much been made that they were going to get Star Trek off the air. And the best way to do it was put it on Friday nights at 10 to 11. At the same time, Desilu went out of business. They failed because of the cost of Star Trek. So Paramount took over, bought Lucille Ball out, and they came in and said, you're not going to do to us what you did to Desilu. Star Trek was the second most expensive TV show on TV. And they said, we're cutting your budget severely, and we're going to wrap it up this year and take what episodes we have and throw them into syndication and goodbye Star Trek. And it's ironic because Star Trek has become the feather in the cap to Paramount Corporation and saved the studio many times over the decades. But in 1968 and 69, they didn't want anything to do with it. You've got all that drama playing out. And then on top of that, Gene Roddenberry feels betrayed by NBC. And so he, he leaves, brings in Fred Freiberger, and who's, who's uh, just kind of thrown into the, um, oh, into the arena and uh, with no support. And he thought Gene would be there working with him at his side. And he finds out nobody at the network will even talk to him because he's associated with Roddenberry. He's associated with Star Trek. They won't even return his phone calls. The hostility is everywhere. So you have these, it's almost like Custer's last stand. You have Freeberger and William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and, and whoever was left <laughs> surrounded by uh, whoever they're fighting. And, and the numbers are overwhelming and they, they just have, don't have a chance. And they know it. And they know they're going down for their last stand. And they just want to, want to do it as well as they can. And we'll look at that third year and say, well, it's not as good as the first two. There's no way it could have been under the circumstances. But they really were trying as hard as they could to keep it as good as they could under the circumstances. One other thing, and I'll, I'll stop on this long speech and let you guys ask a question. <laughs> but the other thing that was going on on top of all this, just to set the scene for the drama, then we can talk about a couple of specific episodes if you like. But this was the year that the FCC decided they were going to get violence off of television. They had been hinting at it for a couple of years of putting more and more pressure on the networks. But it was in 1968 that they made their big move. And, uh, and so this is an action-adventure show. And suddenly they're telling them to take the action out of the action-adventure show. So we look at that third season and we say, well, it doesn't have the movement of the first two or it doesn't have the excitement of the first two. Well, first of all, you don't have the money. And secondly, you're not being allowed to do anything that's really very exciting. Beyond that, they lean more towards very engaging scientific concepts and science fiction concepts because that's the only direction they could go. Excellent. So b before we jump into the third season, we just wanted to talk about how great this Kickstarter is for you guys in the sense that it's allowing you to get the book out early. But if you've been on the fence about getting any of these books, this is a great opportunity to not only get volume three, but to get also volumes one and two and some other really cool rewards. One thing uh, we're looking at in a level, Mark, is original film trim from the editing room floor. Uh, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, you know, in, in 1968, when that first uh, Save Star Trek campaign was going on, actually the second, but it was the big one that saved it at the end of its second season when NBC had actually canceled the show and the fans rose up and they, <laughs> and they roared and got that third year. And, 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 and by the way, in the books, you, you get the ratings there and you'll find out that it, it was not the disaster we had always been told. The ratings were actually pretty respectable. It, again, it was all politics and it was everything else that, that was going against it. But, but uh, B. Joe Trimble, uh, who was working for Roddenberry, and she was a fan, you know, she said, people will pay for these clips, and uh, the fans will want them. You're throwing these things away. You're sweeping them up off of the editing room floor. So she got permission from Roddenberry. He didn't believe anybody would pay for them, but he said, if the fans want them, go ahead and collect them. So she went to the editors and said, don't throw these things away. Put them in a, in a bag, and I'll, I'll get them every day. And it was all the, the trims. 
as they're cutting the episode together and all the footage that they don't need would end up on the floor. And uh, so they started uh, selling those things through Lincoln Enterprises, which was Roddenberry's mail order company, which was launched in 68. And throughout the late 68 and 69 and 70, maybe even the 71, they were selling these film trims for like 99 cents. You'd get about 10 of them. So these are, these are from that, that batch. These are clips that, that we've acquired from Roddenberry.com and uh, from a couple private collectors uh, that were left over from Roddenberry that hadn't been sold and had been in the warehouse forever, and then some, from some collectors. And so these are the actual film trims from 1968 and 69, and even some from 66 and 67 that they had, that they, they were just kind of keeping in case they had to need stuff for anything, like um, an extra shot of the Enterprise or an extra shot of something, establishing shots. And, and so you can get those uh, as part of the rewards along with the books. Yeah, that is really a, a great reward level. And we're going to put a link to the Kickstarter, obviously, in our show notes. But like I said, if, if, if you've been on the fence, this is really a great opportunity to get, get all three of the books. Um, and there, and um, some of the rewards level even get you the, the, the e-version of the book. It's really a, a great opportunity for, for everyone. And, I'll say one, one more thing yeah. about the, uh, the, the uh, Craig Red, one thing about the clips is uh, I saw them back in 68. A friend of mine got some from Lincoln Enterprises, and you'd put them in a projector and, 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 and put them up on your, a white wall. And the colors were incredibly vivid. They were just amazing, more than the television could present back then because we didn't have high-definition TV. Yeah. Well, you're not going to quite see that. They've faded a little bit. The colors have faded and, and turned a little towards the, the red and the pink hues. But that's because they're authentic. You know, it's just like looking at an antique. If it's not a little scratched up, it ain't worth having. And, and so these are the real things. If you were to find clips that had vibrant color, they probably came from the late 70s or even the 80s when the show was being rerun and they were still using film. Yeah. And they hadn't started putting it on disc to send around. The actual authentic ones from the late 60s have faded a little bit because of the age and how that affects film. But they still look pretty good. So that's how you know they're authentic. And, and by the way, because these have come from special sources, they are not just one frame, but usually it's two, sometimes three frames or two and a half frames, all, all in a strip. It's not like it's been clipped to be one frame like they were uh, projecting on walls. A lot of the people were doing to fit them into little cards. These are the actual strips that are a little bit longer. Oh, wow. That, okay. is, a, that is a great detail. Very cool. I, I also noticed, Mark, there's another reward level here that includes uh, copies of scripts that were given to you by Gene Roddenberry. Yeah. Um, Susan Sackett, who was Gene Roddenberry's assistant, gave me every single Star Trek script back in 1982 when I first went over to meet Gene and talk to him the first time about this project, which took so many years for me to get around to doing and to bring, bring forward. It was actually going to be a TV special at that point. And, and then Paramount refused to uh, cooperate, so we switched gears and decided to go as a book, since we couldn't get film clips to show. And uh, so she gave me all the scripts and, and uh, to go copy and return, because they were from Gene's private collection there in the office. And uh, there are a lot of first drafts, a lot of second drafts, uh, a lot of them are first and second drafts, uh, and so forth. And this was a lot of the resource I used in, in writing the book, being able to compare the first drafts to the final drafts and show you what the producers, Gene Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana and, and Fred Freeberger and Gene Roddenberry would do in, in their rewriting of the scripts because I would have the first and last drafts to compare to and along with all their memos and notes. And uh, so I have all these scripts. And uh, so we will copy them. And, you can, and, and the, whoever donates can tell us what script they want. Tell us your favorite episode. And I will look through them personally before we copy them and send them out. Probably take me days, <laughs> depending on how many people are going to that level. Uh, because I just want to make sure that, that the quality of the script is in good shape. You know, there were a couple that were missing a page, or there were a couple where the photocopy had the page off center, or maybe it, it, wasn't, it was a little faded and and uh, so forth, and there's others that are just pristine. So, um, you know, when somebody says, I want this particular script before we send it off to get copied, I'll take a quick look at it, and if I feel that it's compromised in any way, we'll send an email to that 
that uh, person and say, would you like to make another choice? Because here's what I don't like about this particular script. But most of them, 90% of the ones that are, are in really good shape. So it's only a few that there might be a problem there, but I will personally check them to make sure that there's a heads up on that in case it's one of the few that uh, has a little problem to it. Excellent, excellent. And we also noticed that one of the rewards levels gets you the Naked Time script autographed by John D.F. Black, which is pretty neat. Yeah, John has is going to sit down and autograph those for us. I think we have 20 or 20, 25 people so far that have asked for that. And there'll probably be a few more coming up, and John's been very good. He's already autographed about 20, so he'll come back over. I'll go over to his place uh, next week after this wraps up and get him to sign some more. So he'll sign the cover page right by his name. And remember, John D.F. Black, he was the first producer there with Gene Roddenberry on the show, and then when he left, Gene Kuhn came in and took over. He was also the executive script consultant, so he was there with Roddenberry during those first 16 episodes. His name appeared on the screen for the first 13, but he was there through the first 16. And uh, so he and Roddenberry were personally rewriting all these scripts to get the voices right, and these scripts were the template for everything that was going to follow. So they really, together, mostly Gene, but, but John as well, created the voices that then Gene Kuhn and everybody else would carry on with, the voices of Kirk and Spock, the way they talked, the way they behaved, the way they came across. It all came from these two men. And John is the guy who came up with the line, Space, the final frontier. Gene Roddenberry had been procrastinating in writing that, he was so busy rewriting scripts and so john to get him started wrote the first line and said here and gene wrote the second and sent it back to john and john wrote the third and sent it back to gene and that's how it came about so john df black is still a legend in his own time and he's here to autograph these that's awesome uh, before we move into talking about uh season three itself and maybe a couple little excerpts from the book i wanted to mention one more uh pledge level and i i want to say to everybody out there it, this is the the lowest pledge level I would say you should go if you if you if you want to just get in somewhere and that's the forty dollar level and that gets you an autographed hardcover copy of the book and and Craig and I both have uh, autographed copies of the first two books and I say it's that that's a great great thing to have and it's nice to know that that Mark handled your book and signed it for you and I sent it to you and I think Craig will also attest that how how nice these books really are. Oh yeah, they're they're definitely the uh, marquee piece of of my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. And, and you, got, you better put some support put some support under that bookshelf because book three is the biggest and the heaviest of them all. It's three point five pounds. Oh wow, we can't wait. Oh, that's incredible. It, it was a it was a very hard labor for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So I I I'm going to assume that it's going to match up nicely with the first two books, spine wise, on the shelf. Yeah, it, it, they were all designed uh, after that first uh, first edition that came out. It was rushed out back in August of last year for the uh, August uh, Star Trek convention in Vegas. I, I didn't like that. I didn't like the cover. It wasn't proofed very well and so forth. So that was, that was a first-run, first edition. And then before the end of the year, the revised first edition came out. So if anybody's got the old one. I do. The old black cover. That's me. Uh, uh, you know, <laughs> well— I hear it's worth a little bit more now because it's 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 there's not that many of them out there, uh, but the the revised one has more information in it. It's it's a cleaner version. It's got a nicer cover, and its cover with book two and book three all kind of match. And what that means is when you put them all together, the spine is going to spell out T O S. There's T at the top of the first book, O at the second, S on the third, and it just it just they just look like they belong together, all right right next to one another. Oh, that's so. Awesome. so Craig, Craig, you may have to get the revised version. Believe me, I've been thinking about it. I, I do know that um, I got the the e version of it when um, when it was offered, um, but I, I think I might have to, you know, get the the fully updated uh, revised edition. You, you can you can get it for free. You can you can write to Jacobs Brown Press at gmail dot com and you can mail in your old black one. The black book. It looks like a phone book to me. <laughs> <laughs> Some people like it. Some people say it's kind of a cool cover. I don't know. I just didn't like it. You can mail that in, and 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 you'll get a revised version sent out to you. 
Oh, wow. Okay. And then the copy that you mail in will be destroyed. Uh, <laughs> they all were. They all were. I, matter of fact, uh, I, I personally destroyed them. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Well, that's well, good to not, know. Not, not always me. There was too many of them. Uh, but I, I destroyed some. I had a fun day where, where some were brought over here, and I just went out and was ripped them up and put them in the recycle bin. Oh, jeez. Uh, because it's just, you know, when you're, and, and believe me, part of me was saying, maybe I should save some of these. And if they go up in price, I could sell them privately. But, you know, at the same time, when you're a writer and you just want it to be as good as it can be. Sure. And so, and so that second, that revised version was just cleaned up. We had four different, uh, proofreaders go through it, all big Star Trek fans. So they were not only looking for any little mistakes, but, uh, as far as typos or anything like that, but they were looking for any other kind of mistakes. Hmm. Where where maybe I goofed on something and they could come back and say, hey, Mark, on this because we know this episode by heart, the the person's name is actually whatever. And uh, well, I got a phone call from Harlan Ellison on that too. He calls me up and he says, Mark, I love the book, but the name is Edith Keeler, not Edith Kessler. <laughs> now I got to say that was a typo. It's Edith Keeler throughout the twenty pages devoted to that one episode, and on one page of that first edition, it says Kessler. And that's one of those things where the, the fingers just mess up on the keyboard and somebody didn't catch it because, you know, you can't see your own mistakes. We had one proofer editor that was going through it. And this person was, I think, just overwhelmed by the size of these books. It was, oh, my God, this is over 600 pages and it's just season one. And, and so some of this stuff slipped through. So then we brought in a whole team of uh, Scott Brooks, Mark uh, Alfred, uh, Tom Tucker. And oh God! Uh, oh, oh, George Brozak. I didn't even look. It just popped back in my head. And George Brozak wrote for a couple of the Star Trek series, Next Generation, and one of the others. And um, Mark Alfred uh, um, uh, has a popular website, uh, Super. Uh, oh God, um, <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, Tom Tucker's been a, a an editor for years, and. Um, uh, Scott Brooks is a very successful illustrator who does graphic novels, and they're all huge Star Trek fans. And so these guys just did an amazing job of going through the revised book one, book two, and book three to try to make these things as good as they can possibly be for everybody. That is great. That is really great to see that. Uh, that uh, Superfan. It's, his website is called Super, Mark's Superfan. All right. Excellent. Very cool. Well, Mark, I, I don't know if you've looked at the Kickstarter page lately, but uh, it, it looks to me, I'm just kind of a cursory count here, you've got about 400 books to sign so far. I was told close, I was told close to 500 by, uh, by email today, and I was like, oh, God, I, I know what I'll be doing for a couple of days. Now, these books are going to get printed on December 1st and 2nd in Minnesota. We put through the order once we had reached the minimum level, which I think was 20 grand. So we got to that grant, so we put the order through to run these things on the 1st and 2nd of December. And so they'll ship out on the 3rd or 4th to Los Angeles. It takes about five or six or seven days to get here. And if there's snow, it could take a few days more. So I don't know if they're going to hit here around the 11th, 12th, or 13th or what, but i got to kind of be around and be ready to start signing books <laughs> <laughs> for a couple days. <laughs> Well, yeah, that that uh, we we won't hold you up much longer uh, as you get ready to uh, to sign all those books. But so far this season, we just started our season three coverage um, earlier um, a, a couple of weeks back, and so far we've done up through and the children shall lead. Um, is there anything in those four episodes um, that stand out to you as interesting sections uh, of the book? Oh yeah, all of them, all of them. <laughs> you know, uh, well let's start with the first one, Spectre of the Gun. You know, it was written by Gene Kuhn. Why does, uh, does it say Lee Cronin? You look in a lot of other books on Star Trek, or you look on the internet in a lot of places, and they'll tell you, well, he was embarrassed by the scripts he did in the third season. No, he was not. <laughs> you know, he, he loved that script, and, and, and everybody on Star Trek loved that episode. They all were in love with that episode, except, oddly enough, director Vincent Mc, McIverty, when I interviewed him, he said it wasn't his favorite, but you look at his ideas and what he did in that episode, the way he filmed it, you know, where, where the herbs are all walking towards Cameron. And then the next time you go back, they're in a different position where this guy's now on the left and this guy's on the right. That was, wasn't in the script. That was Vincent's idea because he kept doing things to create the dreamlike effect. Bob Justman loved that episode because it was his idea to say, 
Jerry Fetterman claimed it was his idea, but whichever one of them came up with it, they probably came up with it, uh, it, it to, to make the sets minimalistic, incomplete. Uh, so it, it just fragmented because the Melkotians were taking all this out of Kirk's mind and, and, and it was uh, our memories aren't complete. And, and so there's just so many fun things in that episode that made it to the screen. You want to talk about what didn't make it to the screen? How about in the original uh, treatments and the first draft of the script, Kuhn had it to where uh, – uh, oh, I didn't tell you why he wrote it under Lee Cronin. I'll get back to that in a moment. Kuhn, Kuhn had it to where the reason the Melkotians wanted nothing to do with us is because they had been receiving television from Earth – and it took a few decades for the TV to get to them. And so they were watching 1960s television with all the violence, pre-1968, obviously. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, combat and, and, and uh, Man from Monco and, and, just, and all the Westerns and the shoot-em-ups. And, and uh, it was estimated with all those Westerns on TV in the 1950s that we killed the population of the Earth three times over. I read that once, and I believe it. Uh, they were watching all this stuff, and they wanted nothing to do with mankind. Who could blame them? They'd been watching our television. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if they were watching it now and seeing things like uh, Real Housewives of Orange County. My God. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, so that was a great idea that didn't make it in. Why didn't it make it in? Because NBC said, you can't put that in. You're making us look bad. You're making all the networks look bad. We're, we're, we're presenting quality programming. You can't say something like that on our network. Uh, so that's the fun of, of, for me, of the research and doing these books, writing the books, and I hope it's the fun of everybody who reads them, is, is you see the battle lines between the creative end and TV broadcasters and, and why things got stopped and why they couldn't go on. And, and, and the thing for the fragmented sets, as great of an idea as it was, it was mainly done out of budget. The budget had been so brutally cut. And they said, how can we build all this? So we don't have the money to go to a Western town we got to shoot it on the soundstage. How can we afford this? And that's when Justin and Fenneman both came up with this idea individually that we'll uh, do fragmented sets. And, and so sometimes out of desperation, you come up with an idea that makes it even better. Did you know? No, you didn't know. <laughs> I found out from Vincent McIvity, and then I looked in the production records and confirmed it. One of the guys who played one of the herbs had to be replaced in the second day of filming, and they had to go back and reshoot everything. Oh, so wow. The episode went a day over. Why did he have to be replaced? He was a young actor, very, very talented, playing one of the younger herps, and, and uh, Vincent thought the world of him. They auditioned him. They'd seen a little film on him. They thought he was great. But he was so intimidated by being there on Star Trek and so freaked out by the surrealistic sets and the bizarre script and, and everything that it was just overwhelming to him, and he was just kind of losing it. And... And uh, Vincent took him into the dressing room and tried to talk to him and said, pull it together, pull it together, and he couldn't do it. And so he made the decision that we're just going to have to replace him and reshoot. Wow. And we're taking one of the other guys and bumping him up. You Now you're going to play Wyatt Earp instead of Virgil Earp or whatever, and we're going to find a new actor to come in and play the character you were going to play, and that way I can at least get some something shot this afternoon, and then we'll bring somebody in fresh in the morning. And, and these are the battles that they get fought as you're doing a TV show. Okay, do you want to talk about any of those other first ones, or have I too, taken up too much time on Inspector of the Gun? No, th that's fine. Um, if, if you have anything um, re related to Spock's brain, we'd love to hear it. <laughs> All right. Spock's brain. Now, we always wondered why, and that's, that's what I... You, you'll notice a lot of times in, in the story behind the story, I'll do the, um, uh, the script timeline. And then very occasionally on a few episodes, I'll, I'll do a subtitle to it, What Were They Thinking? <laughs> because you just, it's one of those episodes where you go, come on, man, this is such a great series. And 90% and of the episodes are just home runs. What happened here? What, what the hell were they thinking? And actually, they were always thinking. And they were always trying so hard to make every episode special and unique and important. But you can't always succeed. And with Spock's brain, what it had, again, Lee, Gene Kuhn. So remind me, guys, to tell you about Lee Cronin again, because here's two Gene Kuhn scripts in a row. Uh, but just a couple weeks before, they, uh, Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry together came up with that idea while they met in Gene's, Gene Roddenberry's office. The first heart transplant had taken place. And it was major headlines 
all around the world in all the newspapers. And there were major protests all around the world from certain groups that were saying man doesn't have the right to play God. You can't take a heart out of one man and put it in another. Maybe a kidney, but not a heart. And they just kind of looked at each other and said, we got to do something with this. Hmm. Well, 250 years from now, a heart transplant is going to be old news. So what would be the next next big thing from the heart? And they said, the brain. Now, okay, we can look back and go, all right, guys, you should have had a good laugh about it and dropped it. But, <laughs> but you can at least appreciate the fact that they were looking at the news, they were looking at the headlines, they were looking at what was everybody was talking about that day and for weeks, and saying, how can we turn this into provocative television? There's a lot of rumors that Gene Kuhn wrote it as a comedy. He did not. He wrote it as a straight drama, but he put in some humorous scenes, especially towards the end, where in the end there was a great scene, or might have been a great scene, where after they get back to the ship, Spock sneezes, and McCoy and Spock look over, McCoy and Kirk look over at him, and because he sneezes like three times in a row or something, they look over and say, you know, what's the wrong? And he says, I was endeavoring to raise my eyebrow. <laughs> because McCoy had wired up something wrong in his brain. <laughs> and, and, and you find, well, the Vulcan ability will correct it. It'll rechannel the thought process in time. But, but for now, anytime he tries to raise his eyebrow, he's going to sneeze. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so Gene Kuhn did put in some very, very funny bits. But he mostly played it serious because heart transplants were very serious. And the first heart transplant experiment died. I believe the second one did, too. Mm -hmm. They were in South Africa. And, and uh, they weren't allowed to be done in America. My God. But they were done in South Africa. And the first couple patients died within days or weeks after the heart transplant. So it was a pretty serious subject matter. So they weren't going to approach it tongue-in-cheek. But they could see the humor in the situation as well. And they were willing to play it that way. Right, right. At the end, that got taken out. Why did it get taken out? Because Gene Roddenberry, not Fred Freiberger, that's the other revelation people are going to find when they read book three, is Fred Freiberger has really gotten a bum rap for four, four and a half decades now. My heart goes out to this man because uh, he, he's the guy who put the Wild Wild West together. He, he was this producer, and everybody says he's a show killer. He would always come in and do the last season of an episode and would go off the air. No, he did the first season of the Wild Wild West. He did a couple other shows before that, Ben Casey and so forth. But he was the guy who came in and, and brought in all the elements that made the Wild Wild West work, including Dr. Miguelito Loveless, Michael Dunn, and, and just the macabre of that, blending spy with sci-fi with Western. He didn't create the show. Michael Garrison did, but uh, Michael Garrison's concept was very vague. It was Fred Freiberger who came in and really put that together and got the scripts into work and made it made it, it happen. And then Gene Kuhn replaced Fred Freiberger on the Wild Wild West, curiously enough. So it, it um, uh, you know, this guy had pretty impressive credentials, and Roddenberry had wanted Freiberger in season one when John D. F. Black said he was going to leave. And he was burned out. Everybody get burned out after six months on that show, working 14-hour days, weekends. And uh, Freeburger wasn't available, so he got Gene Kuhn. So the guy who replaced Freeburger on the Wild Wild West gets the job on Star Trek because Freeburger's not available. Freiburger, I'm sorry, Freiburger's not available. And so now in season three, we get Fred Freiburger. And he comes in thinking he's going to be working side-by-side side next to Gene Roddenberry. And Gene Roddenberry gives out the first 16 assignments. You can't blame Fred if you don't like some of those stories. They, they were, and the Children Shall Lead was assigned to by Gene Roddenberry, not Fred Freiberger. So Fred comes in and he's got to pretty much uh, realize these episodes that have already been put into work by somebody else. And Gene Roddenberry did not want to go towards comedy. That's why Gene Kuhn left. And if you've read book two, you know about that blow up after Trouble with Triples. Right. And I mud. Um, so, you know, there wasn't going to be any comedy. The two genes were still friends. That's why Gene Kuhn was doing four script assignments, but, and it was supposed to be six. Uh, he just didn't want to produce the show if he wasn't going to be free to produce it the way he wanted to, so he left. Gene Roddenberry was not happy with the way John Meredith Lucas uh, performed during the last part of the second season, and he had a chance to bring in Freddie, who he wanted in the first place, so he brought in Freddie, and Together, they may have made one hell of a team, but without Roddenberry there, without the creator and the visionary of Star Trek, 
the show had lost quite a bit. Yeah. And when you're reading book three, you're going to be stunned to see how much input there is from Gene Roddenberry, how many memos there are from Gene Roddenberry on, on a lot of those first episodes, the Paradise Syndrome especially. Roddenberry loved that idea and gave out that assignment and loved Margaret Arman and, and uh, lots of memos from him uh, about nuances in the story and things to do in that episode and what he liked about the theme and, and on and on. So Gene Roddenberry was far more involved with the third season than people realized. It started to change towards the end of that year, but, uh, but in the beginning, especially the first 16 episodes, he was very, very heavily involved. Wow. So we are looking forward to reading about that. And before we let you go, Lee Cronin. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, well, let me explain one thing real fast. Is, is, as Gene Roddenberry, if you look at the first 16 episodes of the first season, they're not, there's no humor. There's no humor in the Corbinite maneuver. There's no humor in, in uh, uh, I guess there's a tiny bit in The Naked Time and Charlie X just because of the situation of uh, Charlie swatting Yeoman Rand on the rump and Kirk having to talk to him. is kind of a funny situation. And Roddenberry wrote that scene, by the way, uh, the, the, the Kirk fatherly talk scene. That was written by Gene, not Dorothy. Uh, but um, uh, they were very serious episodes, Dagger of the Mind, Conscience of the King, and, and, uh, and on and on. Enemy Within, there were no humor in those episodes. And and that's what Roddenberry wanted to bring the show back to in its third year. He thought it had gotten a little loose during the second season. We love those fun episodes. We love the sparring between Kirk and between McCoy and Spock. We love all that. But but again, what these books do is they take you back in time and you can see how it was then and what everybody was reacting to and dealing with and what, what was happening then. Star Trek was in a battle with Lost in Space, uh, the two two highest rated sci-fi shows on TV, and uh, and Lost in Space was getting more and more silly, and and uh, so Roddenberry wanted to go the serious route, and that's why he and Gene Kuhn had their falling out, creative differences, and that's why he gave a mandate to to Fred Freiberger, no jokes, we're playing this straight. Watch the first sixteen episodes of season one. That's how I want to play this. And that would have been great, but without him in the office to help with the rewrites, you're, you're missing some of the quality. Without the budgets that you had before, you're missing some of the quality. Without some of the action and adventure elements that you had before, because of the FCC mandate, missing some of the quality. And with people just getting burned out and knowing they're in their last season and they're on death row, you're missing some of the quality. So that's that's what happens. Okay, Lee Cronin. So Gene Kuhn left Star Trek, and he signed a contract with Universal Pictures to produce It Takes a Thief. So he's the showrunner over on It Takes a Thief. When you're a showrunner working for one studio, Studio A, you don't go over and take script assignments from Studio B right. on a different network as well. It Takes a Thief was Universal ABC. Star Trek was Paramount NBC. You don't do that. And his contract didn't allow him to do it. So as a favor to Gene Roddenberry and because he loved Star Trek, he continued to write for Star Trek, but he had to do it under an assumed name, which is not unusual in this industry. We all do it. But, but the thing is, is uh, pseudonyms are very common, but the thing is that everybody was involved in this conspiracy. You read these memos in book three and there's memos from NBC, from Stan Robertson at NBC saying, oh, I didn't realize Mr. Cronin was the one writing the script, but we need to get this into development very quickly before he gets busy elsewhere. <laughs> and, and so they, in all the memos, they never say Gene Kuhn. The memos between Justman and Roddenberry, between Stan Robertson and NBC, between Lego, everybody else, it's always Mr. Cronin, you know, and because they couldn't put the name Kuhn in a memo. They couldn't put it in a document to where, if it got out, it could create a lawsuit and maybe ruin somebody's career and his professional reputation. Right, right. So, they, so they, they all were involved in this conspiracy, including the head of the networks and the studios. To me, that was fascinating. When I uncovered that in the show files and, and, and saw all those documents and realized what was going on, I, I mean, I just was tickled to death because it was like, no, who knew? None of us knew. We always, why isn't he using his his other name? Is he embarrassed? No, he wasn't embarrassed. It was all a legal thing, and just trying not to get into trouble. Wow, that is that is amazing, and and it's it's a, just a 
a, a sample of what we've been getting in these books in terms of the information that you've been uncovering, Mark. And I know uh, all of us fans are very, very thankful that you were able to go ahead and, and do this, do these books and, and put in the time and the effort that you put in. I know it. I know we all appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you, because I appreciate hearing that. <laughs> I've aged 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that's about it. Jeff, is there anything else we want to say? No, I, I think we got that about covered. I, oh, good. He's still awake. I was afraid Jeff had gone to sleep. Oh, no, no. I'm still here. I, I uh, would love to keep talking, but I also would love to have Mark come back on again at yeah. some point. So I don't want to exhaust all the conversation. Hey, hey Mark, do you yeah. have a favorite season three episode? Oh, of course. And, and several. <laughs> All right. Well, how about we keep that a secret? And would you mind um, coming back for the introduction of that episode when we get to it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, send me your schedule as far as as you're discussing these episodes. All right. Excellent. I, I mean, I'll be happy to come on any anytime you're discussing any episodes because I love talking Star Trek. And you know me, I can talk my head off. All right. And there's so much to talk about with each episode. And now that the book's coming out, I don't have to be secretive about it. I, it's not like I have to hold back i can let, let i can talk about these things but um you know emp the empath i think was an excellent episode and it was gene roddenberry's favorite of the entire series and it was uh deforest kelly's favorite of the entire series mm, wow. um you, you know uh, the theme of the themes involved in that episode and just the, again the surrealistic filming approach and the eeriness and the beautiful score i mean it's it's not a typical Star Trek episode. And I think that's the problem people have with the empath and Spectre Gun. Some people may say, well, that's not my favorite. It would never make my top 10 list or even my top 20 list uh, because it's not typical Star Trek. But if you really look at it and look at, at the quality of it as a unique piece, uh, there's something very, very interesting about a couple of those episodes. The Tholian Web is, is a very entertaining episode. Uh, All Our Yesterdays is a very entertaining episode. And although a lot of people chuckle at it, uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, I think, is a very profound episode because of the simplicity of it. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, racial bigotry is so absurd that if you're going to comment on it, do it in an absurd manner. Nothing right. can be more effective in my mind. Now, other people will say differently, and they'll say, no, no, it's too campy. Um, but I don't know. I, I think the campiness is, is part of the charm of that because it really helps drive home, home the point. When Frank Gorshin says that thing about all of his people are black on the right side, my people are black on the left side, and and you go, okay, this is this is too silly, but but isn't racial bigotry silly? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I I can think of a lot of good reasons to hate people, but that's not one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so excellent. It sounds like we have a lot of of episodes we can talk to you uh, about when we get to them, and we will definitely take you up on that. And thank you. So make sure you go over and check out the uh, season three. These are the voyages Kickstarter to get the third season um, and some other cool incentives, as well as the first two volumes. And Mark, thank you so much. And uh, best of luck on the um, the, the signing of uh, the, the 400 to 500 books you're going to be signing um, after the Kickstarter ends. Yeah, if my signature looks really kind of awful, it's my hand's going to get a little cramped. But <laughs> I love doing it because each one of those, you know, when book two came out, we did pre-ordering. And it was just we did 800 books in two days that I, that I had to autograph. And, and each one was actually a pleasure. I'm not joking. It was a pleasure because I'm seeing the name of who it's going to and where they live. And I, it became a game for me. It was fun saying, oh, my God, here's the third one going to Ohio this week and or, 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 or this hour. And, and just seeing where, where the books were going off to was actually kind of fun. So I expect it's going to be an enjoyable two days for me to do it. But, yeah, my hand will start to cramp up at some point. Well, that's cool. And my, my signature doesn't look that good in the first place. <laughs> well, it's cool to know that you'll be uh, playing a little game as you sign. So, uh, Mark, thank you again for taking the time to come on with us. We always like talking to you, and we look forward to talking to you again. Jeff, Craig, thank you so much. Good talking to you. I hope to, and yeah, you know, if you're going to be talking about an episode and you want my input, just send us an email and let us know and I'll be there. Okay. We, def we definitely will. Thank you. All right, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, and we are back on the Tricorder Transmissions, and we are pleased to talk to Star Trek Axanar creator, Alec Peters. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your, your project. 
Oh, my pleasure. Before we get into Axanar, would you mind letting our, our listeners in on your, your Star Trek history? Well, I am old enough to actually have seen Star Trek when it was first on TV. And, and I was a, a young lad of six years old uh, when Star Trek first came on. And I remember the, uh, I even remember the little teaser trailers. They had this, uh, that was just this like image of Star Trek, the word Star Trek carved out in a rock and a side of a mountain. And I remember those. And, um, and I watched it and I was a big fan. And then on um, the third season, when they moved, NBC moved it to 10 o'clock on Friday nights because they really, they really kind of had it with Star Trek. They brought it back because of the fan, you know, the fan response. But they were kind of sick and tired of, of Gene Roddenberry by that point. So they moved it to Friday night at 10. And that was way past my bedtime because at that point I was eight. And so my mom would put me to bed at eight o'clock wake me up at 10, let me see Star Trek and put me back to bed. <laughs> so I have a great mom. <laughs> and uh, and that was kind of how it all started. And uh, and then I would watch it religiously uh, in reruns on Channel 11 in New York, where I grew up, where people like Doug Drexler uh, would watch it as well. Richard Hatch, um, used to, we all used to watch it on, on Channel 11 in the reruns at 6 o'clock every evening. Excellent. It's funny, in college... Uh, I lived on Long Island with my grandfather, and I used to watch it uh, when they ran it at 11 o'clock on Sunday nights. All right. So um, so I know we, uh, we normally have a, a line of questions that we go through. Um, Jeff, do you want to present those? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, as the, our listeners know, but I, I'm not sure if, if Alec knows, our show is an original series-focused podcast. And um, as such, we like to ask all of our guests about uh, some of their favorite things about the original series. And, of course, they're pretty boilerplate questions, but we always start off with, uh, do you have a favorite episode of the original series? Well, um, yeah, so that's, I, I mean, it, it's all, you, you would think I would I would say to you, oh, Whom Gods Destroy, season three, that's my favorite. <laughs> um, it's not, which isn't true, because I, I think overall that's a pretty, it's not a great episode. Um, I just happen to like, the idea of Captain Garth and, 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 and Stephen Hatt's portrayal of him, which always led to the question of, you know, who, who was this guy? So, um, but that being said, I mean, as far as as favorite episodes, one of my, I, you know, I you go with most of the, you know, you, most of the, the standards, right? Oh, City on the Edge of Forever. Mm -hmm. That's a great one. Um, and uh, uh, matter of fact, my girlfriend and I watched that um, when we were living in different cities. We watched... City on the Edge of Forever as our first quote-unquote date night uh, on Netflix together. She was in Kentucky, I was in L.A., and we watched that, and, and that was a lot of fun. A Doomsday Machine is probably, I, you know, the, and I have to say, the remastered Doomsday Machine. Yes. I am one of those people who loves the remastered. I don't care for the nostalgia. I mean, yes, I grew up watching that way, but let's face it, the special effects are weak at times. They have aged, they're 50 years old. And watching the remastered Doomsday Machine is such a delight. I bet you I've watched it half a dozen times the past year. That's awesome. how much I love that episode. Um, it, you know, in the remastered, the color is so vibrant, and the special effects really add so much to that episode. And it's just, you know, William Wyndham is brilliant in that episode. There's great stuff with Kirk, uh, with uh, Spock and, and McCoy. I, I, I just love that episode so uh, yeah, if you said Alec, one episode you're stuck on a desert island, that would that would be it. That's good. Doomsday Machine is is pretty high on my list as well, so that's that's cool to hear. Yeah, and in the the remastered version, you got a lot of great space combat scenes. Oh yeah, it's so good. Yeah, they did such a wonderful job with it. Absolutely. So this is usually a tougher one uh, for some people, but I, I have a feeling it might be easy for you. Uh, favorite original series character. Ah, God. Well, so so here's the thing that's funny. I don't really have a favorite character. All right. I I, I really don't. I don't. Um, you know, if you push me, I'd probably go for McCoy. If right. you pushed me, but really, what I love about the original series is the the way the three of them work together. Mm -hmm. um, I really think that's what makes that crew strong is the three of them. Because I mean, you think of Kirk with a different first officer or a different. Uh, chief medical officer and he's not as strong well since you since you did kind of single out mccoy a little bit do you do you have any particular uh, mccoy moments that you you like to reflect on or that that are particularly meaningful for you 
the great thing about McCoy is his the range of emotions that he will go through. Mm -hmm. He really is the human core of the original series. It's his humanity that anchors the other two guys, um, because the, the, you see everything from that guy. You see, you see his sense of humor. You say his deep feeling, like in is I think it's in Balance of Terror when he's. He tells Kirk, you know, don't let it destroy you. Um, there's so many times when we see him as the really, as our, I think it's our lens into that world because he's the most human of the characters, despite what Shatner, what Kirk says about Spock in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Come. Uh, it, it really is McCoy. So that's what I love about that character. And he's very emotional and not always right, but he's, I love his emotion. Excellent. So we're we're actually talking to you in regards to your project Axanar, and it was alluded to that you sort of got the the idea for for it from the uh, third season episode, uh, "Whom Gods Destroy." Um, right. So for everybody listening, you're going to want to head over to Star Trek Axanar.com, and you're going to want to watch the prelude to Axanar, which is a 21 minute setup. Alec, do you want to sort of give us a quick rundown of the project and then also explain how the prelude came about? Sure. So Axnor is, is it's a story about the Battle of Axnor and Garth of Isar. And we hear about this in the third season episode, Whom God's Destroy, that Kirk tells that Garth's book is required reading at the Academy, that the Battle of Axnor, he studied it at the Academy, and he's Kirk's hero. Well, I wanted to know about this guy. Who's Kirk's hero? That's a pretty... You got if you're Kirk's hero, you're pretty badass. So I wanted to know about him, and that's kind of where we, uh, where the starting point was, and what was it? What was the, uh, who was this guy, and why was he Kirk's hero? And so I had written my first Garth story like 20 years ago. I tell people, and then um, four years ago I was up at uh, Star Trek Phase Two. James Coley had invited me up there. He actually wrote Garth into a scene just just for me, and. Um, I came up and played him. That's how it started. And James convinced me to write a script, which we did, and uh, I've, it started gathering steam. So, when we got to the Kickstarter, you know, we raised hundred thousand dollars for Prelude to Axnar, and um, the whole idea was we did a for that we just did a a shoot in my apartment where we just it was just us talking about what we wanted to do, and we raised hundred thousand dollars. Then we took that $100,000 and we made Prelude. And the whole idea was, how do we make something that shows what we're capable of uh, without spending a fortune? And, um, you know, you raise $100,000, you basically get 90% uh, of it. Then you have to set aside 15% for perks. So realistically, we had about $75,000 to work with. And when we were trying to, you know, we looked at like Star Trek Renegades, what they had done, because they had very successful Kickstarters. And we tried to uh, think about, okay, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to show people what we can do? Because we really don't have everything that we need to do a trailer. We, and so I looked at what they did and how they kind of had the Talking Heads trailer with, with uh, Walter Koenig as, as Chekhov, Admiral Chekhov and Tim Russ as, as, as um, Chuvak. And I said, okay, that's interesting. So they basically just had these guys stand in front of a green screen. Hmm, that's interesting. And I, I was inspired by, if you're friends of, fans of the old series MASH, I, there's a great episode there called The Interview, which is them basically being in, interviewed, the characters in the MASH, being interviewed by a, a film crew. And so I said, wow, what if we did that? And, and it's also kind of inspired by the interviews you see in like Band of Brothers or... or, or uh, or, or uh, Saving Private Ryan, where they're interviewing the survivors of the war. And I said, wow, that would be great. And, and then I, I pitched the idea to Christian, our director. He loved it, and we were off to the races. And uh, it honestly came out way better than we thought it would. But that's because we were pretty demanding about what we expected. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of how Prelude came about. And, and it is unbelievable, the fan response. Fans absolutely love it. Yeah, so we're, we feel blessed. Yeah, it, it really was a, a, a cool, unique presentation in terms of seeing something like that in the Star Trek universe. And I, I unfortunately, we weren't able to go to your, your prelude screening in Vegas over the summer when, uh, during convention time, but I was able to watch it when we got back. And I was very, very impressed and very interested in seeing what the, the full project will look like. 
Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that really stood out about the, the prelude was the cast of characters that you've got involved in this. And you've got some pretty big names involved. And I, I, we were a little bit curious as to, uh, as to how you lined up uh, some of those big names. Yeah, well, the way it happened was we first got uh, Richard Hatch. He was very, uh, he's my old acting coach. I, I, I first studied with him 20 years ago. So um, I pitched Richard on it one night, as I always say. I applied him with sake and sushi, and he was sold on it. And uh, and after that, we got J.G. Hersler. And uh, after that, we got Gary Graham. And after Gary, we got, um, I think we got Kate Vernon next. I think Tony Todd was the last one in. That's kind of how that went. <laughs> so uh, it worked out great. Yeah, that's it, uh, awesome. Yeah, we it, it, we just built one on top of the other. You know, you, you say to J.G. Herschel, well, Richard Hatch is doing it, and those guys know each other. So they they were like, oh, cool, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, I was a, a big fan of the Battlestar Galactica uh, reboot. I was glad to see a, a couple of these, uh, the veterans from that are, are going to be in, in Axanar as well. Yeah, well, I'm a huge fan of of, uh, of, Battle, of the new Battlestar Galactica. Um, I was a fan of the, you know, the first one too, but, uh, you know, that doesn't particularly hold up well these days. No. But uh, no, I was t- you know I'm totally a fan and and uh, Kate Vernon it was um, as I tell the story uh, Christian and I saw Kate Vernon at WonderCon in 2013 and uh, we were because t- she her table is right next to Richard Hatch so I'm bullshitting with Richard and uh, Christian starts talking to Kate and then Richard leaves so I go over and start talking to Kate and when we left Kate we're walking away and I turn to Christian and I say. We are so fracking putting her in Axanar. <laughs> because I just saw saw this this potential to do something very different than anything we've seen in Star Trek before. Uh, and I like that. I like we we are constantly trying to do things different that no one has done before. So you guys are in pre-production now. Yep. And you're still scheduled to start on uh, in the spring. We are looking right now to start in March or April. Um, there's a little snag in that right now the main thrust is getting our um, getting our studio, and that means getting a warehouse and converting it into a soundstage, mm-hmm. and that's no small task. The first is trying to actually get a warehouse. Um, we were originally looking at 10,000 square feet uh, of warehouse space. And we just realized that's just way too small if we're going to make this a working studio and not just do Axonar, but do other Star Treks after that. Um, you know, whether we go back and look at, uh, earlier in the war, people have asked us to do that or whether we go and, um, you know, we've talked about doing the early voyages of the enterprise under, uh, uh, Robert April. Uh, there's lots of possibilities that we could do. And people love the fact that we're not just regurgitating Star Trek as it's seen before, whether that's TOS or anything else. People like the fact that we're doing something unique and new and 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 different and, and a time period they've never seen before. Yeah, I, I thought it was really cool to see that you you know you picked a character from an episode and, and expanded on it on it that way. So it really is a, a nice draw. So you're helping out the folks on uh, These Are the Voyages um, with a Kickstarter for their third season. Um, and I guess some of the money from that Kickstarter is going to help you guys out. But you're also still taking retroactive donations that have rewards levels over on your website? Yeah. So what happened is people in the first Axonar or in the second Axonar Kickstarter kept saying, well, we want a Blu-ray or, or the DVD and the, and the CD soundtrack. How do we get that? And and we're like, oh, okay, um, well, we really can't sell that per se just because of CP- CBS and licensing and so forth. Uh, but if you donate, we'll give it to you. It's, it's a funny distinction, but it, it's important. And so we basically allow people to donate to our either of our two Kickstarters and get the perks that were in those Kickstarters. For the first Kickstarter, the Prelude Kickstarter, you can get the, the CD, the DVD, or the Blu-ray. Those are the three levels that we offer from that and then the second kickstarter you can get any of the levels uh so if you haven't donated already you can still be a part of uh, a part of axonar all right cool and we will include the the links to your website and the donation page in the show notes that'd be great before we wrap up i i kind of wanted to jump in and ask one more 
Axnar related question. I was going through the the list of characters that you have involved, and I see there's a, a nice mix of of a couple of characters we were familiar with, and and a bunch of new characters. But one character that we're familiar with that really caught my eyes, one of my favorite Klingons of all time, uh, is listed in there, and that is uh, Chang. I really, really loved that character from Star Trek Six, and I was wondering—I don't want any, to to get any spoilers out of you on this, but I, I was wondering, uh, you know, how you came up with the, the choice to include him. If there was anything uh, special about him that 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 inspired you to pick him? Yeah, you know, it, it's really because it's a story element. Um, I, I think one of the things that that uh, fan films do, and, and we don't call ourselves a fan film, basically because it's not a bunch of fans working on, on Star Trek. It's a bunch of professionals. Um, granted, I'm a fan, and Christian's a fan, and Rob Burnett, our, you know, the editor, uh, our editor, who is the writer-director of Free Enterprise, he's a fan. But once you start going into our DP, our construction coordinator, our, all the department heads, they're not fans. They're professionals who work in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. So top to bottom, we have a professional crew. So it's really not a fan film. Um, it, we call it independent Star Trek. That's what we call it. And one of the but one of the mistakes fan films always do is it's this constant fan service. Mm-hmm. They're always revisiting favorite episodes, or they're re- replicating you know TOS or whatever. Which is God bless. There's a market for that. A lot of people like that. And I worked on Star Trek Phase Two, and I love the people up there. And, and you know they've got a lot of fans. It's awesome. But again, difference between fan film and independent Star Trek is we have to we we can't do things just because the fans want to see it. It's got to make sense. We have to be able to justify this as a story element. So Chang's in there because you know, this is 20 years before the original series. This is when you put out Chang's timeline. He's probably a young lieutenant at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, uh lieutenant commander, something like that. And Axonar, once you see Axonar, it absolutely sets up Star Trek 6. Wow. You abs- you understand why Chang is doing what he's doing in Star Trek 6. Awesome. And so that was why it was important to have him in there. And we've done it. I mean, listen, we did it with Richard Daystrom. You know, there's my attitude is is looking at the timeline and go, you know, this is 2 years after Daystrom well won the Nobel in Z heyday. Why don't we put Daystrom in there? Well, you better have a really good reason if you're going to put Rich, you know, Rich Daystrom in in Axnar. And we we figured it out. Uh, my good friend Rick Stockfield uh, from Page, and they were really cool. And they didn't serve the story, so we took them out. Uh, they just slowed the story down, and there was no rationale. Now we may do that as a vignette. We've talked about doing it as a vignette. It would be a lot of fun. So we may do that. So we'll see. Awesome. Well, that sounds really great. I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing how Chang plays out in this story. Yeah, I think you'll like it. I really do. Great. So, Alec, thank you so much for uh, for giving us an an update uh, and an introduction to our listeners on your on your project, Axonar, and we're looking forward to track it as you get closer to filming, and uh, we hope that at some point you'll come back on and, and give us an update. Hey, listen, anytime, guys. Uh, you know, love chatting about it, so just Skype me or Facebook me and let me know, and I'll be happy to be here. Excellent. Thank you, Alec. So there we go. That was our conversation with Alec Peters. And can't wait to see the finished product there. Definitely. And it's it's pretty exciting. And I, I once again, I'll, I'll repeat that I love the fact that Chang is going to be in this. He's my favorite Klingon of all time. So another, another great thing for me to look forward to personally. But uh, everybody out there, I think this is going to be one of the really special independent Star Trek films. Oh, totally, totally. So make sure to check out Axonar's website and the Kickstarter for These Are the Voyages Season 3. Um, because uh, they both have great things to offer. And we will see you next week with a regularly scheduled commentary track. (laughs) 